Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 13, Mad-Eye Moody. The storm had blown itself out by the following morning. Though the ceiling in the great hall was still gloomy, Heavy clouds of pewter gray swirled overhead as Harry, Ron, and Hermione examined their new course schedules at breakfast. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Everybody, a few announcements before we get started today. Our merch sale is still underway. And if you order before December 17th, your merchandise should still arrive before Christmas Day. So go to notsorryworks.com. Everything is 20% off. And our camp, Come Away Magnificent People, is 10% off. You can find out more about all of that at notsorryworks.com. And our other announcement is that our Every Flavored Bean conversation today is going to be about Professor Vector, who's very aptly named as he is an arithmancy teacher. And Matt and I have both been teachers, and so we're wondering what our nominative determinism names might have been if we had such a blessing in our lives. I think I want to complicate our perk. Can we also imagine what professions we would have if our names were nominally determinative? (laughs) Yes. Okay, oh my we'll do both God. Those things. I'm already annoyed by what mine's going to be. <laughs> Matt, you have a story for us today on the theme of rage. What story do you have for us today? You know, I have a very sweet family and very sweet children. And my oldest child, my daughter, Cammie, is a very kind and sweet 
child. She's always been this way. And she's always especially been kind to younger children. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this comes from her being the oldest, but, you know, she always treated her younger brothers really well. She liked taking care of them. She liked keeping an eye on them, protecting them. And the house a couple of houses ago when we lived someplace else, we had these next door neighbors who were a great family and they had children who were slightly younger than ours. And they had an eldest child who was a couple of years younger than Cammie, and they became really good friends. Now, once Cammie was short on sleep, I think there'd been a sleepover or some kind of like big party, like birthday party the day before. And she was she was kind of tired. And we had this other family over for like a barbecue or something. And it was outside. It was summer. And it was normal. Cammie was being Cammie's self. And she was being kind to everyone and especially kind to our neighbor's, our neighbor's child. But we could see that she was getting tired. You know, she, she would see that she was getting like short and a little bit just impatient. You know, she would never be like abrupt or mean to anybody. You could just see that she was just starting to, her face was getting a little bit sullen and she was not really engaging with people as much. And something happened between the kids. It was like, you know, it's a, it's a summer barbecue, a bunch of kids together. And Cammie just like erupted in emotion and like started storming towards the front door of the house. And our neighbor kid followed her and they got to the house and Cammie turned around and like slammed the door in the kid's face. And the kid kind of kind of stumbled backwards the, the child was okay and Cammie like stormed upstairs and we did we had never seen this behavior from her before like this was completely out of character and we didn't know what was going wrong we thought that like someone had deeply hurt her or wounded her and actually nobody knew what had been done to Cammie to upset her so much and of course we checked in with the child our neighbor's child and they were fine although a little bit confused and we checked in with Cammie and Cammie was like fuming about something like her her emotions were flooding her she didn't really know how to handle them and we were just trying to calm her down but also like correcting her like you do not get to treat other people this way like whatever you're feeling like this is not appropriate and then she was asleep like 10 minutes later <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so like like this huge flood of emotion and then everything was drained and then she just fell asleep and one thing we learned about cammy is that she is all the things that we believe she is right she's a she's a kind child she's a sweet child who likes other children and especially younger children she She's also a child for whom social interaction can be draining and who really needs her rest. And when she doesn't get it, she like starts to transform into this other personality, which because she's kind, she holds in until there's some breaking point that nobody can predict. And then it all comes out at once. Right. And so we've just learned to like help her check in about that. Like, oh, are you approaching that point, which we're never quite sure where it is? Maybe you should go take a nap or right. And we actually have plans about it now. Like if she's at a friend's house and she can feel herself getting there, she calls us up or she tells her friends, oh, my parents just texted. They're so lame. I have to go home. Right. Like to give her permission to get out of there. Right. Because we know that this is part of her now. But I I wanted to tell that story about rage, because when I think of rage, I do think about like. Something about a loss of oneself or like, that's not really true because this is this is part of who Cammie is. That's part Diminished of... Diminished capacity. Yeah, it's part of who Cammie is to lose this energy and to when she gets tired or overextended to, to feel this way. So I don't want to say it's a loss of self, I guess. But there is something about like feeling out of yourself, like feeling like some other part of you is emerging, which is not typically there or that only emerges under certain circumstances and becoming someone different. It's interesting, Vanessa, the word for rage comes from the Latin word ravere, which is also the root for rave, like to rave, like mm-hmm. raving, stark raving mad, which is a you know language that we use in an older age. And it's also the root of rabies, mm-hmm. the disease of rabies, 
which does, you know, lead to these these kinds of experiences uh, when untreated, like they have, they share the same root as rage. And so I think there's something to that about rage being not just anger or not just annoyance or not not even just sort of fury, but like a particular kind of fury when you're almost brought outside of yourself or you erupt in some unpredictable way. Matt, I think that that story is so apt in describing rage. When I feel rage as an adult, usually I feel like I'm able to feel a feeling and then say, okay, that's a feeling. Now let's strategize about the correct way to respond to the situation. Mm-hmm. And rage is so powerful that I can't do that. I can't catch the feeling. Yeah. And part of, for me, getting more mature is, like, realizing, like, oh, shoot, I'm about to cross over (laughs) to a place where I can't control my actions anymore, go on a walk, right? And I love that you guys are teaching Cammie exactly that moment, because I feel like at 40, I'm still learning. Like, you're almost at the point where you can't strategize best to remove yourself from the situation. Yeah. But yeah, I think that rage is. It's a part of us, right? It's when someone or something has like hit a button in us when we're at a diminished capacity because we're tired or overwhelmed or whatever it is. And then the real question is like, how do we handle it? How do we handle that feeling? And how do we maybe try to avoid those provocations because they get us to act in a way that we aren't necessarily proud of later? I mean, I think that's the tricky thing about it is, as you said in your response, like the tricky thing about that point is it's moving. Like it's yeah. it's never this in the same place on any two days or in any two situations because I will be more tired one day than another. Right. Or I will be more stressed one day than another. Or maybe I'm sick one day and not another. Or this particular person is a person who is already trying my patience and so I have less patience with them already. And like you have to learn the skills for like – noticing it in yourself and then try to manage them, which is, a, as you say, like, it's not something that adults have a handle on because it's, we surprise ourselves with it. I think the other yeah. thing, and we'll get to this in the chapter, is like, there are certain forms of rage, which I find like understandable and justified. Right. Right. Like, I think the language that because of my story and because of how we're talking about it, like, usually it's a, it's something I try to control in myself. Mm-hmm. But I also want to pay attention to, like, not necessarily trying to control it in other people because it's a signal of something that's going on. Sometimes a signal that they're overtired, like my, at the time, five-year-old daughter, right? Or mm-hmm. sometimes it's a signal that, like, they're being hurt and they're mm-hmm. being wounded or whatever, right? And and that's why I think, like, adjacent words like outrage mm-hmm. can be important for us thinking about rage because we tend to think about outrage as, like, justified or as, like, right. this is a... a a response to something and rage and outrage seems like it's it's something that we want to be careful about policing, right? Mm-hmm. This is a really meaty topic, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. Should we remind people what happened in the chapter? Yeah, I'm excited to hear this chapter recapped in 30 seconds. Vanessa, are you ready? May I count you in? Yes, please. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. So they get their schedules. Harry is concerned about Sirius. He still hasn't heard from him. They start to go to their morning classes. And first they go to Trelawney. And she's like, you're going to die. And Harry's like, shut up. I was born in July. And then Ron sexually harasses Lavender Brown, which I don't think I had noticed before. And then they go to care of magical creatures. And Hagrid has them taking care of blast-ended scroots. And then Draco is about to curse Harry from behind. And Moody turns him into some sort of ferret. And it's horrible. And McGonagall's like, we don't do that. Great work. It makes my job easier now because I don't feel anxiety about 
not doing well, because I know our listeners have been well served. Yeah. Okay, Matt, are you ready? No. On your mark. Get set. Go. So they they're go to breakfast, and Hermione's eating, and Ron says the first of a couple of jerky things he says during this chapter. And then they go to class, and they first they see—I um, can't remember where they go first, but then they see the—oh, the, the, the herbology and with the pus, and then they go to the scroots, oh. and then they go to Trelawney. And you're right, Ron says a thing, which I never noticed before, <laughs> is disgusting. And then—and uh, then, oh, they run into Moody, and Moody turns Draco into a ferret, and Draco says something, some terrible things, and then the ferret's bounced up and down, and McGonagall comes, and she's enraged. Is she enraged? She's not. I don't think she is. But we'll talk about that in the chapter. Thank you so much for telling us about boober tubers. Cannot believe I forgot about Professor Sprout, which definitely would have been my favorite class. I feel like we have to go sort of back to front today and yep. talk about the big incident, which is, of course, that Draco Malfoy was, in Moody's defense, about to strike Harry from behind. And Moody decides to handle this by not only turning Draco into a ferret, which I remembered, but like bouncing him quite violently along the floor and like kind of playing with his ferret body. I'm wondering if you think that Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr. and we can figure out how much we want to talk about the characters in one way or the other is acting out of rage in like a post-traumatic stress way. He is someone who's most likely been shot from behind. And is that why we're supposed to believe that he hates this so much? He's standing there with his gnarled body, missing an eye, right? Like all sorts of injuries. Is that why we're supposed to believe this? That some button has been pushed on him, that he is enraged and unable to sort of think thoughtfully about the appropriate way to handle the situation? This is an extraordinarily complicated question because I think it depends whether we're talking about Mad-Eye Moody or Barty Crouch. (laughs) Really, right? To one degree, right? Yeah, it's something I was actually thinking about a lot, Matt. So let's let's take a step back. My beloved 10-year-old is obsessed with this question, so I've had a lot of great conversations about it. So we are going to find out later that the body of Moody is actually being used through Polyjuice Potion as a disguise for Barty Crouch Jr., who not only was a Death Eater, but still is a Death Eater and is a loyal follower of Voldemort. And he is using Mad-Eye Moody's visage, because Mad-Eye Moody is in a box this whole time, but Barty Crouch Jr. is using the appearance of Mad-Eye Moody to become a spy at Hogwarts for the year in an attempt to bring Harry Potter to Voldemort to help Barty Crouch Jr.'s Lord Voldemort rise again. So this is a big plot that Barty Crouch Jr. is under. So whenever we look at Moody, I think we should be looking both at Barty Crouch Jr., but also at Barty Crouch Jr.'s performance of Mad-Eye Moody in this spy capacity. And it's just really fascinating to me, as I know you know, Matt, one of my favorite genres of movie and book is Westerns, because I think that this question of when quote-unquote bad guys and good guys behave in such similar ways that you can't quite tell the difference— yeah. And the only difference is a badge. 
And throughout this chapter, I was trying to read Moody as Barty Crouch Jr. And I was like, they would both behave this way. Yeah. At the end of the chapter, Mad-Eye Moody is saying to Draco, oh, Snape, he's an old friend of mine in a, like, pissed off way. And Mad-Eye Moody would feel that way. Because Snape used to be a Death Eater, but Barty Crouch Jr. would also be annoyed at Snape because Snape turned. Lucius Malfoy, same, right? Mad-Eye Moody would hate Lucius Malfoy because he was a Death Eater, but Barty Crouch Jr. would hate him because he sold people out in order to stay out of prison. And this question of, like, who is a good guy and who is a bad guy? And whose rage are we like, thank God— Mad-Eye Moody is enraged all the time, but he's enraged on our side. And I've had that feeling sometimes when someone is standing up and mad and I'm like, well, I'm glad that he's on my side. But it like the only difference sometimes between Barty Crouch Jr. and Mad-Eye Moody is who has the badge. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the reasons Barty Crouch is able to pull this off for so long is because his behavior is super believable. Right. Right. I mean, we remember Polyjuice Potion. We remember when Harry and Ron become Crab and Goyle, and they look exactly like Crab and Goyle, but things seem weird to Draco because their behavior is different, right? And they have to play into the behavior. Like, this comes naturally, whatever naturally means. This comes naturally to Barty, or at least the behaviors that Barty as Mad-Eye Moody undertakes are ones that are believable within the character of Mad-Eye. And that's why I said the question is so complicated, because we don't know what actual Mad-Eye Moody would have done in this situation. Right. We know what Barty Crouch did do. It looks like what we think Mad-Eye would have done. And so, like, it gets hard. That's why it gets complicated. The question of rage in particular with this situation, though, is if rage is a constant state, if this kind of, like, anger and propensity to violence and short-fusedness, if that's a word, if that's just who you are every day, is that rage? Like, if we're thinking about rage as, like, something maybe opening up in you or cracking in you so that a, a part of yourself that you usually manage erupts into a scene or a situation, sometimes quite justifiably, other times maybe in ways that we regret, but whatever. Like if that's what rage is, as a person who's just always in that state, is that kind of rage or are they something else? Are they, what would you describe that person as? Or maybe they're like, maybe we say they're constantly enraged. To me, anyway, it does connote something of like a a sudden change in personality rather than like the reason Barty Crouch plays into the role so well is because Moody is like this 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know. What do you think? Can rage be a constant state or does it have to be something that kind of breaks into us or breaks out of us in particularly stressful or extreme moments? I think rage can absolutely be at least a near constant state. Because to me, rage is anger that you can't control. Yeah. And I think that people, for various reasons, live in a state where they can't control their anger, right? And I feel like we see this often with PTSD, where you get triggered and you are therefore psychologically in the middle of a really difficult situation. And so you might no longer be able to control your fear or your anger. And the more traumas that have accumulated on a person, I think the more easily triggered you are into that. So I do think that it's still rage, even if it's constant or near constant. Because as soon as it's uncontrollable, it's rage. 
I think that's right. And I think you have brought up the condition which really defines rage, which is this loss of control, right? Yeah. And I think for most of us, most of our listeners, we are able to control those things. And we, mm-hmm. that my story was about like teaching a child to learn how to control that thing. And it's okay that this happens because this is kids, but we have to learn how to control. But you're right. right. When certain things happen to us, control becomes more difficult in certain moments and because of certain histories and certain pasts. And you're right. Like, depending upon our histories, like, that control might be more difficult for us more of the time. And you could even imagine cases of extreme trauma, perhaps like Moody, perhaps like Freddie Crouch Jr., where they almost never have control right. of how their emotions surge inside of them just because of what they've lived through and the experience. So, yeah, I think, you've, I think you're right. I think you persuaded me that rage is not only a breaking out. It's only a breaking out if you're a person lucky enough to be able to have that kind of control most of the time. McGonagall's rage as she walks into this scene, as she is watching Moody kind of torture Draco, her rage is actually safety, like creates a sense of safety. If she walked in and was like, ha ha ha, that's so funny. Oh, Moody, we don't do that here. That would actually add to the chaos. But the fact that she is enraged by this and is shocked and appalled actually is restoring order in a way that matters. Yeah, or even like the, I think that the distinction doesn't have to be that dramatic. If she comes in, she's like, I disapprove of this, Mad-Eye. You should not be doing this. And expresses disappointment or even anger in a more, in a more even-tempered way. That would feel like an inappropriately like calm response to the children. Like what the children want to see is someone who comes in and says like, what is going on? And that's what she does. So yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, this kind of goes back to your question about like, what do we do when the behavior of the good guys looks like the behavior of the bad guys? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's the one problem of like, is Medi a good guy? Is he Barty Crouch? Who's a good guy? Who's a bad guy? Why does their behavior look so much alike? But I think one reason why, and this is a very complicated moral problem, which we're not going to answer in, in the next few minutes, but one reason why is because when people are acting out in extreme ways, sometimes it demands an extreme response. We hope not exactly the same response, but... Unless you respond with some, like, energy, then you don't signal to the people around you or even to yourself that you're taking seriously the threat of what's going on, right? The line between what an energetic response is and the same response or an identical response can get kind of blurry and messy, right? And so, obviously, if McGonagall had come down and turned Mad-Eye into a ferret and started bouncing him up and down, we would be like, okay, that's too much, right? Right. But, (laughs) inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we do need McGonagall to come down and show a kind of forcefulness and energy, which is within the range of Mad-Eye's behavior, because that signals to everybody else, okay, what we were feeling, that this mm-hmm. is completely out of line, is confirmed by the authority figure here who is going to keep us safe, because we know she understands how significant this is, right? And she can only show that through her reaction. And that's not to say any of this was, like, deliberative for McGonagall. I think she just reacted in the moment. But I think that reaction is what makes her trustworthy to the children because she's responding with some force to this really extreme situation. Yeah, another example of that, far be it for me in this chapter to come to a great defense of Professor Trelawney, who is Mm -hmm. really awful to Harry in a number of ways. But... I think she does a similar thing in response to Ron's awful comment. So they're doing astronomy-based charting in in Professor Trelawney's class in this chapter. And Lavender says something about Uranus, the, the planet. 
And Ron says, I'd like to see Uranus lavender, which is a horrible thing to say. I don't think I had ever realized until this moment, like, how crude and just awful, and especially awful knowing that Ron is going to date Lavender later and be horrible to her while dating her. It's just, I hate this. And Trelawney, in response, doesn't humiliate Ron, but I think she uses her rage as information that something needs to happen, that she's lost control of this classroom if Ron feels comfortable saying that in front of her. And so she's like, do you know what? Let me remind you I'm in charge here. And so you all have a lot of homework. And this reclaiming of authority that, like, we don't treat people like that in my classroom and is potentially using this moment of feeling enraged as information that she can still control. And therefore, it's sort of anger and not rage. So, see, this is interesting because I I agree with everything you said. I just don't know if I would use the language of rage to describe Trelawney's reaction, right? Although part of this is hard to know because I think— my story and the way we've been talking about rage is that it does have an outlet in outward behavior. But I think if I think about my own self or my own life, I feel like there are times when I feel internally enraged, but I am able to control my reaction so that my outward behavior is not extreme, right? Because I I could see Trelawney here being enraged maybe internally, but what she does is very even. It's very firm. She obviously asserts her authority in the room and also clearly signals to Ron that this was inappropriate. But I don't think she loses control. In fact, she she asserts control over the room, but also, you know what I mean? Like, and if loss of control is the distinction, yeah, I don't know. Because I think there are ways we can feel rage internally, but then gain control over that and then act outwardly. And that may be what's going on with Trelawney here. I just think it's possible. I agree with you that it's not clear to me that it's rage. I'm just not sure if I want to change my definition yet because I think that it's possible that she went to the faculty room after this and is like, I should have handled that a little bit differently. Sure. Right? I should have said, Ron, we do not speak to each other like that. You have extra homework. Right? And I think that that to me, is sort of a mature version of rage where you're like, I'm going to respond. I don't totally have control over it, but eyes are on me and I have to do something. And then when you're calmer, like processing, okay, next time this happens, rather than being enraged, like, and not only try to not be enraged and handle it differently, but what can I do so I don't get into that situation again? And really thinking about, like, why did Ron feel comfortable doing that? What have I done wrong that has allowed a child to feel like he could speak to another child like that in front of me? And so I I do think sometimes we lose control in a way that we feel like, okay, let me get some control of this while it's happening, right? Yeah. And to me, it's about would a calm version of you make the same decision? Sure. Yeah, that's fair. So I have one scene that might help us think through this issue of control a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but also I have one follow-on question about this Trelawney situation. This is actually more a question about English boarding school culture, which I know you're an expert on. I'm an expert in, yep. But the fact that Trelawney assigns this to the whole class, I mean, this also reminds me of kind of like my military experience. Like sometimes you help a class police itself by punishing everyone Right. Right. Like, do you think that's part of what's, what Trelawney's strategy is here? Like, is is it like 
she loses control a little bit and gives a punishment that in the staff room afterwards, she's like, oh, I should have probably just singled out Ron more rather than make Lavender also have to do this, which I think is totally believable. I think that you're reading this story, I think, is actually the one that I, I think is right. And I agree with you. But part of me also wonders, like, is this the kind of thing that happens in English boarding schools a lot when one person misbehaves, the yeah. teacher assigns a little more work to the whole class, so the class starts to police this kind of misbehavior? I think we can take this out of the context of English boarding schools, yeah. Matt. I mean, to your point, I think it's something that's done in the military. And I can imagine certain teachers that I had or that I worked with, or I can even imagine myself under certain circumstances doing something like this and then regretting yeah. it, right? Like, going to yep. the faculty room afterwards and at least wondering if I had done the right thing in the moment. Sure. And the word policing is interesting because there's also a community aspect to this. So I can imagine Trelawney, if Hogwarts was a, had a healthy staff room, which I'm not sure that they do, a healthy staff room culture, I can imagine her saying to a colleague, you know, I gave the whole class homework and I'm worried that I punished Lavender even though she didn't do anything wrong. But also I want fellow students to hold each other accountable and not laugh at horrible comments like that. And I don't want them to be policing each other, but I do want a sense of community and accountability, right? Like I can imagine a conversation in which afterwards you acknowledge that you lost control and made a decision in the moment and then are wondering whether or not it was an effective decision So much of this to me is about the processing that happens afterwards and whether or not you repeat these mistakes, because these mistakes are going to happen. If Cammie started slamming doors in front of everybody's faces all the time, like, that's where we would start to judge her. But doing this once when she was five, you're like, eh. Right. Yeah, right. You don't want to have people punished for things they didn't do. On the other hand, something like that does signal that this, we are a community and everyone in the room was affected. Yep. And so we need a communal response. So here's the other situation about control. The other scene of rage that seemed clear to me and has to do with this idea of control, which is that the incident with with Mad-Eye and Malfoy at the end of the chapter doesn't come out of nowhere. What happens is Malfoy runs into Harry, Ron, and Hermione in the hallway, and he's, you know, he's with his Slytherin troop, and he's got this article from the Daily Prophet, which gets Arthur Weasley's name wrong and is honestly not that unflattering an article of Arthur Weasley, but Malfoy turns it into one. Malfoy really uses it to dig at Ron, to tease him about the things he always teases him about, about his family not being elite enough and not being wealthy enough and all these things. And Ron feels some rage. And there's this line that says that Ron was shaking with fury. I mean, this this was the first moment in the text where I was like, oh, here, a lot of what I was looking for, I was like, is that rage? Is that rage? Here is like, oh, Ron is feeling some rage. And this idea of like, found it. this idea of Ron like shaking with fury, like, you know, probably our listeners and you and I, we've been in this situation before where you start to feel like you can't control your body, right? Because you're, you're so angry, but you're trying to control your body. Like you don't want your body to shake. Presumably Ron doesn't want all the students around him to see that, that his body's starting to shake, but you're actually losing control. Right. I mean, I bring up the situation not because I have anything smart to say about it, but just just like another example of like controlling anger and how like something about rage and fury, which is related, has to do with when and how we control our anger. The other thing I like about this, too, is when Ron starts to lose control, Harry steps in. Right. And like Harry is the one that takes some action and engages Malfoy, which is why 
the attack is made against Harry because Harry's the one that stands up for Ron and why Moody steps in and the whole thing that we've already discussed happens. And so to me, that's also like something about the community response. Like you see this person is not able to control. And so you're stepping in because you have more control or are able to respond better for the sake of the person who's losing control. Yeah, Matt. And I think that's one of the beautiful like interventions that you've set up with Cammie, right, is you've said to her, even when you feel like you're about to lose control, even if I'm not in the room, just text me and I'll like I'll come and do that for you. And I think that that's part of loving someone is noticing like when they're about to sort of become a wrestler in the ring and tagging them out and being like, nope, I got this. You go sit. For whatever reason, this didn't push a button on me. And, you know, the rage has created a situation in which you are potentially losing control. And so let me tag you out before you totally let that out. Yeah, I think that's right, Vanessa. I think that's right. Which is why this idea that, you know, we talk about a lot that love is attention is so important. Because I think that, you know, if you pay attention to the people who you love, you'll notice early signs of rage (laughs) or that something Mm. is happening that might enrage them. And you can sort of tap them out before they get in there. Because we all have different capacities. Different things are going to set us off based on our histories, based on our personalities. And part of being in community is stepping up and being like, this is not going to be the thing that enrages me. Malfoy's not calling my mother fat. I love Molly, but it's not, if it was my mom, I would feel a different degree of this. And so I'm going to sort of shoulder my way in and put myself in sort of the line of fire in this way. Yeah, you're right. There is something about Harry's proximity to it that makes him capable of understanding what Ron's going through. But Molly's not his mom, although she's a mother figure to him. Right. He's also super angry, but able to keep some more composure and respond to Malfoy. Yeah, that's right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. 
Vanessa, before we move on to our spiritual reading practice, there's one other thing I want to mention, which is not about rage. It's just as me like being irritated with Malfoy, like mm-hmm. many other people in this chapter. Mm-hmm. When the Slytherins show up at Hagrid's hut for care of magical creatures, and they see the blast and its scroots, Malfoy says, like, what's the point of them? Right? And there's something about just the phrasing of that question, which which was so telling to me, right? Because the idea that the rest of the world around us exists for our use is like such a presumption of extractive capitalism and and kind of the instrumentalist forms of reason that dominate Western thought. And Malfoy's deep in it, right? Like he he sees the scoots, he's like, mm-hmm. they don't have any obvious use to me, and so they are worthless, right? I think that's just worth noting. I mean, you recently wrote a really beautiful article in Slate magazine about like why writing novels, even novels that aren't great, is important because like just because you're resisting this idea that everything has to have like a practical use that makes me, you know, smarter or sexier or richer or whatever, right? There's resistance in just valuing a thing for what it is, which is also why I love Haggard's not understanding the question, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I love that, like, I love that Malfoy's like, what's their use? And Hagrid's like, like, he doesn't say anything. He's like, what do you mean? Like, they're blasted scroots. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> That's why we're here, because of them. Aren't they great? Like, it, like, I love that he is so indifferent to the idea that, like, these creatures exist for his use for something else. And he's just like, oh, these are creatures in the world. I want to celebrate them just because they are. Which is why we love Hagrid. Yeah. And why we see him as this like figure of like resistance in these more subtle ways throughout the novels. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that, Matt, is that this ethos is so prevalent that even our beautiful, wonderful, brilliant Hermione falls into it, right? Yeah. Yeah. When the trio is walking back up to the castle from Hagrid's hut. Ron makes fun of Hermione because Hermione has stood up to Draco and been like, you don't know. They could be really useful for all sorts of things. And then Ron says, oh, yeah, Hermione, can't they be useful for all sorts of things? And Hermione is like, no, probably not. And like, I think we should kill them. (laughs) And so, right, like Hermione believes in this, too, that things we should only keep things alive that are somehow useful to us and that if an animal isn't we should kill it. I I don't think it's because it's not useful. It's because it's not useful and kind of scary and ugly and gross that Hermione's like, let's kill it. But that's not a great reason (laughs) to kill something. Yeah, right. Right. You know, we didn't have the chance to talk about it much, but Hermione is up to some other stuff in this chapter where she is trying to signal the value of certain creatures apart from their usefulness, namely house elves, right? I just think it's really, I, I love that I love that Hagrid doesn't understand the question. Yes, I me too. <laughs> and it makes me like pay attention to the name of his class is not the care and use of magical creatures. Right. It's just the care of magical creatures. It's a chaplaincy class. It is. What you learn is you're going to look at a blast ended screw and think it is wonderful. Uh-huh. That's what you're going to learn to do here. And that's great. And how to feed it. And we're going to figure out how to feed it together. <laughs> how to feed it. That's right. Well, Matt, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you. 
Okay, Matt, we are going to do Lectio Divina, our last Lectio for a little while, and I have picked a sentence for us. Great. A booming bell echoed from the castle across the wet grounds, signaling the end of the lesson, and the class separated. So, Matt, what is literally happening in this sentence? So the Gryffindors have just gone to their first class of the first day of the first term, which for them is herbology. And they have just been asked to depus, to extract the pus <laughs> from bubo tubers, which was not an experience that many of them liked. But Professor Sprout has just explained the usefulness of bubo tubers. Uh-huh. I think if Hagrid were there, he would have just been like, they're just wonderful because they exist. We love them because they are, for no other reason. But but Professor Sprout says it's because they're good at reducing acne. Things can be both. I feel like Professor yeah. Sprout believes in both. I think you're right. I think Professor Sprout loves plants just because they are, but is also speaking the language that these children will understand and convincing them, you know, in a way that will be especially convincing, perhaps, to middle schoolers and teenagers <laughs> that they ought to have some patience with this activity, which sounds like not a lot of fun. Matt, step two. A booming bell echoed from the castle across the wet grounds, signaling the end of the lesson, and the class separated. So step two is what other stories does this remind us of? Has anything come to mind for you? So actually, this makes me think of uh, an old Swedish movie. <laughs> So there's a movie from the early 1960s called uh, Winter Light by Ingmar Bergman, which is a very, very depressing movie about existential despair and the silence of God or absence of God or non-existence of God. The kind of despair was around the prospect of, of nuclear war and Holocaust. So at the end of the movie, the pastor is a person who's having this crisis of faith and is full of despair and is kind of cruel and not kind to people. And no one is showing up at church, and they have to decide whether they are actually going to go ahead with the service. It's him and the organist there and the bell ringer, and no one shows up, and they're trying to decide, do we have church or don't we have church? But no one can make a decision because they they just don't know what to do, and they're just, again, full of despair. And so the when time runs out and the time comes, the bell ringer just goes up and starts ringing the bell. And so they have church, right? And so this, this bell ringing moment is kind of a climactic moment in the end of the movie. And it just because I've I've watched the movie re- recently, I taught it in a class here. When I heard you say the phrase, the bell booms, I thought of that bell at the end of Winterlight. How about you, Vanessa? I thought of something that is the opposite of an mm. Ingmar Bergman movie, which is a romance novel. Okay. Um, instead of existential despair at the end, there's a happily ever after at the end. Okay. And it reminds me of one of my absolutely favorite romance novels one of the only ones i've reread it's called it started with the scandal it's by julian long and there is a child in it who desperately wants to be heavy enough and strong enough to ring the church bell and he gets teased because he's little for his age and he can't ring the church bell And at one point in the novel, he actually, people can't find him, and it's a rainstorm, and, you know, they're scared, and they find him at the top of the tower, sort of at the base of the church bell, crying, and his mother asks him, why are you here? What's wrong? And he says, someone made fun of me because I don't have a father. And then he's like, he didn't know what to do, so he went 
to ring the church bell to like prove that he has worth. And just this like, you know, he was acting out of despair, which I think is different from rage, but is similar in that we behave in a way that we can't quite control for things that upset us. You know, this child was triggered by this really mean-spirited comment, and he was like, I'm going to go ring the church bell (laughs) to prove that I'm worth something. So that's what it reminds me of. Hmm. So step three, Matt, is what does this remind us of in our own lives? A booming bell echoed from the castle across the wet grounds, signaling the end of the lesson, and the class separated. So the church I serve at Harvard was founded as a memorial to the war dead of the First World War. And then as we continued being engaged in war, as we continued memorializing others. And so the Sunday closest to Armistice Day or Veterans Day every year, we have a special service and we say a special prayer at the end of the service and open the doors of the church and ring the bell of the church, which is a very big bell. And it's right in the middle of Harvard's campus and it's pretty loud. Yeah. And so when when you ask what this reminds me of in my own life, I think of a couple of weeks ago when the bell of my church boomed in the memory of the all the men and women who were part of Harvard and who have died since World War One, serving in the armed forces. Vanessa, what does it remind you of in your life? What it reminds me of, Matt, is like very on the nose, but it reminds me of sitting in middle school and just like desperately waiting for the bells to ring for certain classes and like trying to kind of count down to guess it. And I guess I should also say, like, I'm going to go back to step two because this now reminds me of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes, which is just a Calvin. Mm -hmm. But Calvin is sitting in school and he's waiting to look at the clock. He's about to look at the clock and he's like, it's probably two o'clock, but I'm going to tell myself it's 145 so that when I look at the clock and it's 157, I won't be sad. And then he looks at the clock and he goes, 830. And just that feeling (laughs) of like, I just, middle school, rough. It's rough. It was rough for me. Yeah. So. Me too. And I think middle school was the last time my school had bells. Like in high school, we just had digital clocks in every room and the teacher just released us. But in middle school, there were definitely like bells, like loud bells that signaled class time ending. Yeah. Okay, Matt, so step four, what does this make us feel called to? A booming bell echoed from the castle across the wet ground, signaling the end of the lesson, and the class separated. What it reminds me of, Matt, is I'm trying to get better at pausing, like, before Hmm. reacting. And so I'm trying to practice this by taking opportunities to pause, like the frustrating minute where my computer's not loading, Mm. rather than sitting there getting frustrated, being like, this is an opportunity for me to pause and take a deep breath. And so this is a lovely reminder to me that whenever I hear a bell, I should do that. We live near a church and the bell goes off that I really want to engage in this practice of pausing. And so I'm going to try to listen for bells and other opportunities Mm. to pause. What about you? You know, I'm thinking about this idea of like class change and like students being released and going from place to place. You know, I live on a college campus. And so every hour, hour and a half, the yard is flooded and there's people out walking around. And I remember in early September how exciting that was, like to see everyone back and walking around and being on the quad. And it felt like there was so much energy and positivity around around the place and just excitement at the return. But now 
it's later in the term and everyone's tired. And I think I'm not paying attention to that. Like what a privilege it is still to be here and that this is our life that we get to study and be at this place. I'm more concerned with like getting through the day than, I mean, to use your language, just kind of paying attention to where we are and, and kind of pausing. So I think today when I go walk out in the yard, I'm going to try to slow down a little bit and, and remember that we're we're still pretty lucky to be here and that there's all of these people who I was excited to have back at school are the same people now that they were. <laughs> and I should still be excited that we're that we're all here. Well, Matt, thank you so much for doing this really fun Lectio with me. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemails from Emily. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Emily from Oak Park, Illinois. I recently listened to your Owl Post edition with Amara Jones, which I just love. There was lots of great food for thought. And Vanessa, I particularly liked your comment about J.K. Rowling being a poor reader of her own work. And I got to thinking about the differences in, in intent and in messages and, and authorship. And I'm a minister and I've been preaching sermons for a couple of decades. And when I started out, I used to want to write down sort of the one statement that I wanted the takeaway to be for my sermon so that I would know that people would get exactly what I was trying to say. And what I have found over these years is that I don't really have any control around what people hear. 
and that that is okay. I put a lot of thought into the words that I say, but the moment I speak them, I know that they are going to fall differently on people's ears. And I have come to really trust that and love that. And there are even occasions when people will come up to me, maybe that Sunday or maybe weeks or months later and say like, you know, Emily, it was so helpful when you said X. And I think to myself, oh, I don't think I ever said X, but I just say to the person, thank you. I'm so glad that was helpful. And I hope too that, um, I mean, I love that we can see that in J.K. Rowling's work. Even if she doesn't see it, we see it and we know that there are lots of liberatory and life-affirming messages there. And I hope that that is true for sermons that I preach that go beyond what I could ever even dream of. So thank you for that. Thank you, Emily. I haven't been preaching for quite as long as you, but I totally understand, totally sympathize with your experience of it. And I think you're right. I think for people who do preach even a little bit, like you learn that your text does not belong to you pretty quickly because you can spend all your energy trying to get one message across, but people are going to hear what they hear. And in many cases, as you say, they hear what they need to hear, which is why you're there in the first place, because you're trying to give people what they need to hear. I mean, occasionally I've had people say like the exact opposite or I think harmful things, and then you do have to get in a little bit of correction. And Emily, I'm guessing you've had that experience sometimes, but I think the grace with which you accommodate others' interpretations of your interpretation is really wonderful and a sign of the gift of your ministry and something I wish we could see more in the author of this series of books that we visit each week. Yes, Emily, thank you so much. And I just have to give credit where credit is due. I do think I got that framing of J.K. Rowling from Stephanie Paulsell, that she is a bad reader of her own work. So if I didn't credit Stephanie at the time, let me do so now. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Edgar Dalrymple, who is 85, a father, grandfather, cyclist, and hug enthusiast. Mary Felton, who is 75, a beloved wife, mother, and grandmother. Chelsea, who is 28 and the best of us. Ryan Nevins and Sonia Grom, who were 38 and 46. They were passionate, beloved teachers and parents. Virginia Harton, who was 84, a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and peanut butter fudge connoisseur. And William Hitchcock, who was 78, a fierce and sassy nana, who loved her grandkids deeply. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, who would you like to bless this week? This week, I would like to bless Seamus Finnegan. I think Seamus uh, is not happy about his first day of class at Hogwarts School of... (laughs) Witchcraft and wizardry. Nope. In herbology, he has to extract pus from bubo tubers. And then in care of magical creatures, he has to figure out how to manage these blast ended scroots. Neither activity seems very fun. I think 
both are fine. I think they're both fine activities to be part of his instruction, so that's okay. But I just remember like showing up on the first day of school and walking to a class and realizing, oh, this is what this class is going to be. <laughs> and just kind of, you know, you go, I mean, I was just speaking about the optimism of the opening of school. I remember like, you know, the first day of school in, in middle school or high school or whatever, and feeling a little bit of nerves, but also trying to feel some of the excitement and trying to feel like some of the energy of being back at it. And you walk into certain classes, gym comes to mind, swimming, we had one semester. And I was just like, oh, it's going to be this. All term. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get to be in a bathing suit in front of all that's, the people who bully me. Oh, that's good. Right. So that's what we're doing here. Okay. <laughs> right. I feel Seamus. And so, Seamus, I'm sorry you had a bad day. It's part of learning. So, blessings as you go and make your way through your fourth <laughs> year. Vanessa, who are you blessing? I would like to bless Hannah Abbott, a Hufflepuff. She is the one who shares with us that poor Eloisa Midgen cursed off her nose by trying to get rid of her acne. And I would like to bless Hannah because she's being sweet. She's like, like poor Eloise. But also she's gossiping. And first of all, I love to gossip. But I would like to bless her because that should have been an inside your brain thought. Not everyone knew that about Eloise. And you know, we don't need to share information like that. And the reason I am blessing Hannah Abbott for that is that I am 40 years old and I would still do this. I would 100% still do this. And I don't like it about myself. I need to keep more secrets. And so a blessing for Hannah Abbott and for all of us who just, with not bad intentions, right, just love to share information about other people that we probably shouldn't share. Next week, we're reading Book 4, Chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curses Through the Theme of Intellectual Humility as part of our grant with the Greater Good Science Center. And we're going to have a professor come and teach us about it a little bit. And I'm really excited to have this conversation about intellectual humility, Matt, and read this particular chapter through the theme. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We are going to be doing a live show in Washington, D.C. in January. And that live show is also going to be live streamed. So you can find out more about that by going to harrypottersacredtext.com. Also, we have a merchandise sale for the holidays and our camp is on sale right now. We have an herb and myth tarot class in January that you can find out more by going to notsorryworks.com. You can also listen to ad-free episodes by subscribing to our Not Sorry channel on Apple. And lastly, Matt, we have a couple of pilgrimages on sale right now. Most importantly, our Emily Dickinson pilgrimage with Amy Hollywood, Stephanie Paulsell, and myself. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisawa and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks this week to Emily for their voice memo, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. Three of my favorite people. <laughs> and Emily Dickinson. And Emily Dickinson. She's going to be there? People. Whoa, that is a get. <laughs> I know. <laughs> wow. Not to be missed. Her honorarium is exorbitant. <laughs>